0: As a teenager, I hated walking into the lunchroom of my school on the first day of classes and choosing a table. If everyone simply gathered to eat, that would be one thing, but the uh, lunchroom tables were socially arranged. The smart kids had a table, the jocks had a table, the cheerleaders had a table, you know, popular kids had a table, the nerds, the rejected, You, you you know what I'm talking about. I wasn't at the bottom, but I I certainly wasn't at the top either. And interestingly, everyone knew where to sit. You didn't walk into the lunchroom and say, hey, where am I supposed to sit? You just kinda knew how things worked. You found your people and you sat down, and if you happened to sit at the wrong table, you found out quickly. Unfortunately, it was a microcosm of our culture sitting around tables, a reflection of who we are as a people social ordering didn't change when i graduated high school it was present in college it was present in the workforce it was present and continues to be present in every area for instance many of you experience similar anxieties when you come to church and although you might not be at the bottom you sure don't feel like you're at the top it's not that you are poor or nerdy or ugly or whatever But you you don't think you deserve to sit with the moral people because you take a look at your life and you think, wow, I'm really not that moral. Or you don't think you deserve to sit with the people who have flourishing marriages since your marriage busted. It's like, I don't need to be sitting with the people who've been celebrating 25 or 30 or 35 years of marriage because that's not me. Or maybe you think, I don't need to sit with the faithful people because no matter how much you've tried to be faithful, you're far from it. And as painful as this is to admit, a lot of churches have hidden pecking orders. You know what pecking orders are, right? You know, the the chicken who's weak gets picked on by the chicken who's a little stronger and then the chicken who's a little stronger picks on that chicken all the way up to the top, and you're like the head chicken, you know, and you peck on everybody else. It's pecking orders, and everybody seems to kind of gather around pecking orders, and unfortunately, churches sometimes fall into that same category. Now, it's not advertised. In fact, if you ask churches, you ask pastors, you ask church leaders, they will mostly deny that their church or their system has a pecking order, but people are people. Systems are systems. Pecking orders typically emerge when people people gather and and this is the reason or at least one reason I love Christmas so much because Christmas dismantles the entire pecking order system it comes in and flips over those tables that socially orders all the people and Christmas spreads a table as far as the eyes can see, laden with food and drinks and desserts and invites everyone to partake. And a lot of us see Christmas as, you know, gold and silver decorations with lights and snowflakes and Santa Claus and reindeer and gifts and bows and pumpkin spice, everything. And we like that. It's fun, it's enjoyable to move into the holiday season and have all the parties and give the gifts and enjoy the good food and all those things. But at the heart of Christmas, is a radical and profound message sweeping across both the homeless person in the gutter and the noble person in the castle. When Mary received the good news that Jesus was growing in her womb, She extolled, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. Listen to this line. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Mary said, I am in the low status, I'm just a servant, but yet you've looked on favor with me. She continues, look from now on, everyone will consider me, me, little Mary. Everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Now look at this line. I love this line. In Luke 1, 52 through 54, this is part of what Mary extolled when she found out that she was carrying the Savior of the world. She says, he, talking about God, he has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel. His servant Israel, remembering his mercy. When the birth of Jesus was announced, to whom was it delivered? Was it delivered to the wealthy? Was it delivered to the powerful? Was it delivered to those at the top of the pecking order? No. It was delivered to lowly shepherds, poor, dirty, uneducated shepherds listen to Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 the angel said don't be afraid look i bring good news to you lowly uneducated almost forgotten shepherds i bring good news to you wonderful joyous good news for all people your savior is born today in david city he is christ the lord folks that is the Christmas table. A young Jewish girl and lowly shepherds announcing the birth of a king. Now, here's what I wanna do this morning. To the best of my ability, I want to illustrate for you how radically Jesus takes this message and begins to spread it to the people of his day. How right in the middle of the gospels, this Christmas table is spread and everyone can come And interestingly, he actually illustrates what I'm talking about today literally around a table. This is found in Luke chapter 14. Now, if you've been with us, you've probably heard me teach through this particular story a couple of times. In fact, it served as the backdrop to our last Easter's message. And today I'm gonna repeat a few points because the few points that I repeat need to be repeated. And then I'm going to just slightly turn it in a different direction. Luke 14 describes a fascinating exchange between Jesus and the religious elites of his day. The religious uh, professionals, if you will. Let me walk you through the story. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, This was not just a Pharisee. This was not just a religious leader. It was one of the leading religious leaders. So this was the top, if you will, of the pecking order in the religious world. And watch this line. They were watching him carefully. They, the religious elites, were watching him, Jesus, carefully. That lets you know the professional religious people didn't like Jesus very much. They were suspicious of him, cynical, waiting for Jesus to mess up to do something to accuse him of ignoring the law of Moses and therefore expose him as a fraud. So Jesus walks right into this elaborate dinner, sits right down in the middle of all the food and the drinks and all the professional religious people gathered around, and something interesting happens. A man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was there. Now, we don't know much about this man other than the fact that he had a physical condition creating swelling of his body and he happened to be at this meal. Maybe he was related to someone and he came because he was related. Maybe someone invited him and some of the religious leaders didn't know that he was going to be present. Maybe he just slipped in because he knew Jesus was there. We don't know. We just know that a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of the body was present at the same dinner. And this is so interesting because this man's condition was commonly known at that time as dropsy. And dropsy rendered this man grossly unattractive. And within their culture, there was a common belief someone within their culture, someone like this man suffering from this condition probably sinned to cause his body to swell and to look as grotesque as it did they believed that judgment on this man's sin came from god and caused him to have this physical condition and if it wasn't him that sinned then it was his parents who sinned and judgment kind of skipped over his parents and went to their son so now imagine the scene the religious leaders are gathered around Jesus is there. A man who has this grotesque physical condition happens to be sitting among them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law look at this man and they judge him as a sinner because he has this physical condition. And Jesus gets involved. Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, does the law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? Now, why did Jesus ask this question? I mean, the concern is not about whether it's okay to heal the man because if God wants to heal him, he certainly can do so. The concern is whether the religious leaders believe God would heal him on the Sabbath. That's the question. You see, for the Jewish religious culture, observing the Sabbath was a sign of the covenant. You can see that in Exodus 31.13. It was similar, the Sabbath was similar to a wedding ring and A wedding ring is a sign of the covenant of marriage. The Sabbath was a sign of the covenant between the Jewish people and God. So if you didn't honor the Sabbath, it would be like a man or a woman taking off his or her wedding ring because they disrespect the vows they took. I mean, it was quite serious to ignore the Sabbath, not follow the Sabbath. So refusing to honor the Sabbath showed contempt for the covenant as a whole. So Jesus forced these religious leaders to choose between honoring the Sabbath in their traditional way and honoring the man who had dropsy. He backed these religious leaders into a traditional theological corner. He encased them in their own hypocrisy to the point they were disoriented and they didn't know what to do. So when Jesus said to the Pharisees and the the lawyers, hey, Does the Sabbath allow me to heal this man or not? This is what it says. They said nothing. They didn't know what to say. He put them in a corner and they had no clue what to say. They didn't know how to get out of the question. And Jesus didn't wait for an answer. Jesus took hold of the sick man, cured him, and let him go. And the dinner guests sat in stunned silence. The atmosphere is thick and I want you to feel the thickness of the atmosphere. I want you to imagine this scene in your, in your mind's eye. Put it there. You've got Jesus sitting in the middle of this elaborate dinner. You've got this man with dropsy. His body is swollen and looks grotesque. You've got the Pharisees and the lawyers looking on the man as a man who has sinned and is at the bottom of the pecking order. And you've got Jesus, who is this religious leader, wanting to get involved and heal the man. And he does so in the middle of a meal. And he does so on the Sabbath. And they are livid that Jesus does this, two reasons why. Number one, the healing took place during a meal. Now, again, I want you to imagine sitting at a dinner with distinguished people, professionals, well-connected people within our community, the elite of our society, if you will, and you're about to slice into a beautiful, thick, medium-rare, that's my choice, ribeye steak. And right when you cut the steak, and you get ready to take your first bite, you notice something strange at the other end of the table. Someone sitting at the other end of the table, someone you haven't paid attention to, has bandages around his arm and waist. And he has a few bandages and band-aids on his face and behind those bandages is an obvious swollen body. Something is wrong with this man and he's very sick and the bandages are covering the sores of his body. Then you notice one of the dinner guests conversing with this wounded person, and within a few minutes, the dinner guest slides the broccoli and mashed potatoes out of the way, asks a few of the other guests to move down closer to where you're sitting, and everyone is starting to get closer to you and the food is sliding down the table, so you put down your fork and you put down your knife and you watch what's going on at the other end of the table and all of a sudden this dinner guest pulls this man with the bandages and band-aids up onto the table, takes off his shoes, unwraps the bandages, puts on fresh gauzes and cream into the wounds and you lose your appetite. That's basically what happened. Do you see what Jesus is doing at this table? He is honoring the lowly and lowering the honored. He is healing the sick and sickening the healed. He is disrupting the system. He is overturning traditions. He is messing with the process. He is embarrassing the religious elite and he does it intentionally. That's what I want you to feel. That's what I want you to see. Look, listen folks, he, he could have moved the man outside. He could have said, hey, listen sir, I know, I know you're sick and we're, we're trying to finish a meal and we'll probably offend a lot of people if we get involved with healing you right now in the middle of all this dinner. So. We've got a couple options. Either one, we can step outside and I can heal you out there or you can wait until the dinner's over. I mean, the man's had dropsy for years. It's not like 30 more minutes or 45 minutes is going to make that much of a difference. We can wait until the dessert comes and after our cheesecake with cherries on top, we'll go outside and I'll be happy to heal you then and it won't offend any of the dinner guests and especially the host. But that's not what he does. He heals him in the middle of the dinner with the gravy dripping off the beards of the Pharisees. He performs it in the middle of their posh dinner. Not only does he do it during the meal, but he does it on the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath was a holy day reserved for worship and honoring God. It was not about healing people, getting involved in people's messes. It was not about touching lepers. It was not about touching people who had swollen bodies and dirty. The the Sabbath was a covenant, a sign of the relationship Israel had with God, and it was to signify worship and honor. According to the tradition of the Pharisees, you left all the healing and stuff to another time. But here's what's interesting. Jesus knew all of that. That's what I want you to feel. He knew that. He knew that the tradition of the Pharisees said not to do things like this on the Sabbath. And and you may not know this, but the Sabbath, according to the Jewish tradition, the Sabbath began at sundown and ended at sundown. In our world, the day begins with the sunrise and ends with the sunset. We kind of look at that as a day. That's not the way the Jewish people looked at it. The way they look at it, and still look at it, is the sun sets, that begins the day, and the sun rises, sets the next day. That's a full turn. So let's imagine that the meal was one o'clock in the afternoon, and maybe 1.30 or so, Jesus gets involved in this man's life. Do you realize that by 5.30 or 6 o'clock, the Sabbath would have been over? Just a few hours. Jesus could have easily waited until the Sabbath ended. He could have easily said, hey, listen, sir, this is, this is, we got, we had a couple problems, okay? These guys are really good to us. They've invited us into their home. They're spending all this money on food. We are the guests. They are the hosts. I know you're very sick and I want to help you, but if we can just work with the system as much as we can, first of all, it's Sabbath, okay? And it doesn't look like he didn't have a Watch, I'm just making this imagine, nor did he have an iPhone or anything like that either. Maybe a sundial, I don't know. But he looks down and says, okay, it's only a few hours until the sun sets, Sabbath will be over, we can do the healing as soon as the sun sets uh, outside and we won't offend all the people who have been so kind to us to invite us in their home. He doesn't do that. Jesus intentionally heals the man on the Sabbath before the sun sets. He intentionally performs the healing in the middle of a dinner and he intentionally heals the man on the Sabbath. Knowing both decisions will tick off the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Knowing he is disrupting tradition, knowing it will cause many of them to be angry and upset and offended and create tension across the area. And he did it all on purpose. This is one of the things we are missing within Christianity today courage to confront religious hypocrisy and rigid fundamentalism that is killing churches across our nation. We are scared to tick off church people. And I say sometimes we need to walk into posh religious dinner parties, sit at the tables of their mo- on their most religious days and stir up drama. Because truth needs to come out no matter if the religious people are offended. But we're scared of it. We don't want to offend this family. We don't want to say something over here that will take this person off. So we just kind of let the tradition happen. We let the system continue to roll on. That is not the way Jesus did it. He was bold. He was confident. He walked right into the middle of this elaborate party on the Sabbath and healed someone and knowing it would take every one of them off. How could Jesus be so bold? The only way anyone could be that bold is to know something the others don't know. To have privileged information and to be operating in a dimension of knowledge others have not yet experienced. The only way to heal a man with dropsy on the Sabbath to the disappointment of the religious leaders is to know something so amazing, so incredible, so life transforming, it was worth whatever flack he would receive from whomever would throw it his way. And the question is, what did he know? What did Jesus know that the others didn't? What did Jesus know that so many of us miss? He knew something good happened. Listen to me very carefully. He knew something good happened, not will happen, already happened past tense. He knew something extraordinary already occurred and he was announcing it. He knew something amazing had already transpired that the rest of them didn't know. That's how he could walk right into the middle of an elaborate dinner and heal a man on the Sabbath and tick them all off because he had information they didn't have not something will happen, not something eventually good will come your way if you keep your nose clean, if you stop sticking your hand in the cookie jar, if you level out and fly right, if you lay off the bottle, if you get 60 days sober behind you, if you figure out how to say no, 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 no. He knew something already happened, whether any of those things ever happened. You see, Christmas is not promising something will happen if you keep up your end of the deal. Christmas is not saying eventually good things will come to you if you're able to figure out how to say no on a consistent basis. Christmas is announcing something has already happened. What is that something? God is near. Not will become near, he is near. Christmas is announcing the Savior is among us. Christmas is announcing the kingdom is all around. Christmas is saying the night is over. Daylight is dawning. The sun has arisen. So I can walk into this party and I can touch a grotesque man and heal him knowing that I'm ticking everybody off around me because I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. It's already happened and I'm here announcing the good news. And the Christmas table is open for any and all who choose to sit and eat. There is no pecking order in the kingdom of God. And are you ready for this? Yes, we are ready for this. Christmas says the man with dropsy can be healed in the middle of a fancy party thrown by professional religious leaders accustomed to the pecking order on the most religious day of the week because, as far as God is concerned, the bookkeeping is over. The pecking order is done. Do you know what I mean by that? Let me explain it further. The recording of rights and wrongs, what's clean and dirty, what's good and bad, what's pure and impure, who owes what to whom, who is in debt to God or other people, all of it is gone. That entire system is rotted. The way of working toward righteousness that way is removed and it will never be installed again. And Christ is here to announce the entire system is decayed from the inside out. And I have instituted a new system. Everybody is worthy. So I, don't, I have a hard time with that. Colossians 2. 14, he destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing that old system to the cross. The bookkeeping, the record keeping, the tally book was nailed to the cross, and whatever gets nailed to the cross dies. And Christmas announces the record keeping is over. So when Jesus walks into that party and the religious elite are here and the man with dropsy' he's here. He knows that that is not the system the kingdom of God operates on. The system the kingdom of God operates on is we're all the same. So he can touch that man on the Sabbath and healing because Christ knew something the rest of them didn't know. They were operating on the old system and Christ is operating in the new one. Luke 14, let's go back to the story. One of the reasons Jesus heals the man with dropsy in the middle of a dinner on the Sabbath was to illustrate how this whole bookkeeping system is over with. You see, in Jesus' day, the seating arrangement at a dinner actually showed a pecking order, I mean, literally. The most honored people would come in and they would sit in certain seats. And the next most honored would sit in a different ring of seats. And then the lower people would sit in different seats and on and on and on. That's the way that culture was. Jesus flipped the whole thing upside down. That is why he says, now when you read the story, you'll get this part. That's why he says this right after he heals the man with dropsy. He says in verse 8: when someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Don't do that. That's the way you've been operating. Like when you walk into a dinner party in that particular day, if you were the most honored guest, you would take the highest seat. That was just their culture. The pecking order system was everywhere. Don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. The host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give your seat to this other person embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, instead, a new system, New way of doing things. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, friend, move up here to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Because, watch this, all who lift themselves up will be brought low. And those who make themselves low will be lifted up. That's Christmas. That's the Christmas table. Those who are lifted, lowered. Those who are lowered, lifted. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm gonna land this. I want you to be, I want you to have your seatbelts on, seat back up, put your drinks away. Might get a little bumpy. In the past, I preached this passage. And I was a little off in my preaching of the passage. You know, that could happen. You, you can continue to learn, and you can continue to grow, and you can continue to see new things. In the past, when I preached this passage, I taught that Jesus was teaching us as his followers to assume that other people are better and more deserving than us. So when we walk into a dinner like that, take the least seat because other people are more deserving than you. They are better than you. I think that's off, I don't don't think that's accurate. I'll tell you why. Assuming others are better than you is perpetuating the pecking order just from a different position. Before, you thought of yourself as better and other people lower. Now you think of yourself as lower and other people better, but you're still adding value to yourself and other people, all based on performance and all based on a sense of works righteousness. Works righteousness. Folks, the Christmas table isn't filled with people who think others are lower than them or who think others are better than them. Rather, it is lined with those who know they are not at least better than anyone else. They say, well, Scott, isn't that the exact same thing? No, it's not. Let me, let me do my absolute best to, to, to explain this, okay? As clear as I know how to be. When it comes to the Christmas table, where we are sitting, gathered around with Christ and one another, whether you are better than me or more deserving than me, is still based on bookkeeping. It's based on a record that I somehow keep and I assign value to you and assume that you assign value to me based on whether I'm living right or wrong or obedient or not obedient. And at the Christmas table, there's no record of wrongs. There's no bookkeeping. So whether you see yourself better than me or me better than you, I have no idea. But as a follower of Jesus and as a member of his kingdom, see, I don't operate according to that standard. At the Christmas table, I just know this. I don't know a lot. I actually don't know if you perform better than me or worse than me. I don't really know what your private life is like. I don't really know what's going on in your head. I don't really know the struggles you have. I don't really know the sins that you commit that you still struggle with. I don't really know the content of your life or the quality of your marriage or your finances or anything. I don't know those things. But I do know this. I do know this. I am not better than you we are the same. That's what the gospel announces. To the lowly and to the wealthy. Wealthy, you're not better than them. Poor, you're not worse than them. And poor, you're not better than them. And wealthy, you're not lower than them. We are all the same when we sit at the table with Christ. We are equal. And because we are the same, I can take a seat in the least important place, not because I am least, not because you are better, but because at the Christmas table, there are no least important seats and more important seats. We are all seated with Christ and we are all secure in him, whether you're wealthy or poor, whether you're educated or not, whether you struggle or not, we all need a savior and we all have found our saving in him. For a long time, I thought the gospel was about me becoming weak and broken and humbled and slavish as possible, possibly as I could. And then I would be in the right position for God to do great things through me. That's all religion. That's all record keeping. I just want to be more humble than you. Well, how do you know if you're more humble? I've been watching you and you're more prideful than me. I've been keeping a record. It's all religion it's all bookkeeping God's kingdom is not about lowering me to the level where I am worthless it's about elevating all people to where we're all worthy you see around the Christmas table everyone is welcome because everyone is equal that's why he could go to the shepherds and say I've got good news for you you know why they needed that because they didn't think they were worthy That's why he could look at little Mary and say, hey, you're blessed, Mary. You're you're just as good as anybody else. You're just as beautiful as anybody else. You're just as worthy as anybody else. That's why he reaches up and pulls the rich down, not because they're so bad. That's why he reaches down and pulls the, the lowly up, not because they're so good. Do not hear me say, the rich are bad and the poor are better. He reaches up and pulls the rich down, and he reaches up and pulls the the poor up, not to opposite them, but to balance them. This is a good Christmas sermon. One of my favorite songs, To the Table. Josh Lasseter sings it here at Forest Park and just does a fantastic job. In fact, he's going to come and our band's going to close us out with this song in just a minute. And I've heard Josh sing it several times during Sanctuary. We have once a month here, just a time of prayer and communion and worship. And he has sung it here a few times. And every time I hear it, I just think, well, this is just so so true and so beautiful and so simple. And it, it explains the Christmas table so well. But just listen to a few of these lyrics while they get ready to come and They're gonna sing it for you. He's gonna do so much better than I can just quoting it, but listen to the heart of this song. It says, hear the voice of love that's calling. There's a chair that waits for you and a friend who understands everything you're going through, but you keep standing at a distance in the shadow of your shame. There's a light of hope that's shining. Won't you come and take your place? And I love this, I love this, I love this. And bring it all to the table. There is nothing he ain't seen before. For all your fear, all your sorrow, all your sadness, there's a Savior. And he calls. Bring it all to the table. Folks, that is the message of Christmas. He elevates the lowly. He lowers the powerful. He shows mercy to all. He breaks the pecking order into pieces and he nails the entire stale ineffective condemning system to the cross. So, immoral woman, come to the table. Wealthy professional, come to the table. Dishonest man, come to the table. Broken teenager, come to the table. Decorated soldier, come to the table. Discouraged pastor, come to the table. Drug addict, come to the table. Busted Christian, come to the table. You are all welcome. That, my friend, is the Christmas table. Now listen as Josh sings this song so beautifully.
1: You keep standing at a.
0: Ourselves to the table, and what we find there is a Savior who has spread food before us and drink before us, and who looks in our eyes, and all we feel is love and joy and grace and mercy because ain't nothing nothing you ain't seen before. We might drag ourselves to the table feeling as if we are unworthy, but we're gonna walk away with joy and and hope, knowing that we are worthy because of what you have done for us and you esteem us. How amazing is that? Father, remind us of that today. Fill us with that. Help us see that the Christmas table is spread wide for anybody who wants to come and sit. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We are welcome. It doesn't matter how much we feel beat up or broken, we're welcome. It doesn't matter how many times we've tried and failed, we're welcome. That's good news, that's good news. And Father, if there's a person sitting in this room or standing in this room, or maybe they're watching at home or they're sitting on their deck or their couch or their bed or driving down the road or whatever, and they just have a really hard time believing this, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit will take the truth of this and drive it deep within them, that you will bring hope to them and light to them, that they might see that they are worthy. They are worthy. And the promise has already been given and fulfilled, not when they clean up their act, not when they get right, but they are made right because of you. May we see that, may that be clear, and may we walk from this place with that knowledge and hope, hope running through every pore of our being. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the table that you invite us to come and sit and eat. Thank you. Thank you for Christmas, in Jesus' name, amen. That's no, good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for coming and being a part, having the reminder God's grace just poured into you. Hey, when you leave here today, I just want to encourage you to go by the windows if you haven't done so yet and pick a card or two or three or ever how many and uh, share the grace that God has poured into our lives with other people. Freely we have been given to, may we freely give to others. Take take it and go buy the gifts and bring them back wrapped and let's clean that window off it represents kids all across our area we want to always be a church it's not all about this it's about our community, it's about other families, other people help us reach them and make a difference in their lives this Christmas thank you so much for being with us you have an incredible day, we'll see you